Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording October 4th, 2021, we're exploring how some other countries are greening their armed forces with Julia Tass, a researcher at IRIS. This discussion is made possible thanks to the support of the Department of National Defense's Mines Program. In the next few months, Canada will select its next fighter aircraft that will help ensure the safety and security of Canadians and deliver economic benefits to industry. The next generation Block 3 Super Hornet is the best choice to take on Canada's most complex missions. It will also deliver more than 250,000 high paying jobs and 61 billion to Canada's economy over the life of the program. This is nearly three times more than its competitors. It has also work that stays in Canada guaranteed. Along with the economic benefits, the Super Hornet is the most efficient, affordable means of transitioning from Canada's existing CF-18s to a new platform. It is capable of performing the full range of tactical strike fighter missions required by the Royal Canadian Air Force at a much more affordable rate. For the Canadian men and women in uniform that will be flying this aircraft, it's important that they can execute their mission safely and return home each and every day. The Block 3 Super Hornet's two-engine design ensures safe operations over open sea, the Arctic, and other challenging environments. Whether it's today or tomorrow, Boeing will continue to be a partner to Canada well into the future. The international community has progressively been committing to significant greenhouse gas emission reductions. Uh, and at the end of this month with COP26, uh, I'm sure we're gonna see some enhancements to those commitments. And Canada, like many of our allies, has established targets for um, actual government, um, the operations of government-wide CO2 emission reductions. Uh, and that necessarily will have an impact on uh, ministries of defense and militaries, given the uh, size of emissions uh, as a percentage of government uh, activity that they contribute. So this morning, we're going to be talking about how uh, some of our key allies are integrating climate and sustainability considerations into their defense activities. So to explore this topic today, uh, I'm very happy to be joined by Julia Tass, uh, who's joining us uh, from Paris, uh, who is a fellow at IRIS. Um, Julia, welcome. You've done work on what several other Canadian allies have done in this respect. Um, so I, th I welcome you today and hope that you can help us understand some of what Canada's uh, other key allies are doing in the sustainability piece. Uh, so to get us uh, rolling on the conversation, you talk a little bit about how um, different allies that you've looked at are defining uh, green defense and sustainability and what types of targets they are putting on themselves uh, when it comes to the operations of their defense establishments. Sure, thank you very much and very happy to be here. So as you said, we've worked on uh, what uh, you mentioned as Canada, Canada allies, but allies, but uh, what uh, here in France we see as French allies, um, in as part of the uh, Observatory on Defense and Climate Work for the Ministry of Force uh, of uh, Armed Forces in France. And um, we've looked at first at, at how ministries of defense consider climate and sustainability. And first and foremost, maybe to start with, uh, there is a big difference between both when you have to integrate them into your uh, strategy and your doctrine. Uh, sustainability has more to do with um, the uh, reduction of your climate and environmental footprint. So reducing um, the um, the impact on natural environments, um, whereas considering climates and climate change as a whole would also um, not only talk about at, uh, mitigation but also adaptation. So considering the impact on of climate on uh, infrastructure, on uh, equipment, on on uh, forces, on humans, etc., um, and societies. So. 
we've looked into the climate part and not only into the sustainability part. And what we've seen is that uh, for most uh, of our um, allies, climate is considered as a threat multiplier. And this is uh, something the US has formal, uh, have formalized uh, about uh, 20, uh, 15 years ago. Um, meaning that climate will not create new conflicts, but might uh, exacerbate existing tensions. Um, that's that's uh, that's the first part. And then, when considering the impact climate could have uh, on on the on the activities and operations, um, there is a, a bigger uh, a gap between different uh, different ministries and different countries. Um, some have literally started uh, implementing adaptation policies and programs while others are still at the exploration phase or the understanding uh, of, of climate and, and its impact. Um, and maybe also to come back on this mitigation point. So mitigation is the um, consideration when you're in the climate community. It's the word that is used to reduce uh, your carbon emission. Um, you say you mitigate your, your, um, your carbon emissions and um, for most uh, armed forces, it's more related to energy resilience than to actual mitigation, meaning that the, the, the aim is not to, to, um, to reduce carbon emissions, but to be less de dependent on, uh, on fuel, uh, on, on long and complex and also fragile um, chains. Um, of uh, logistic, logistic chains that uh, really expose armed forces to, to, to threats. Um, and the reduction of carbon emission is a co-benefit of energy resilience, but it's not the, 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 the first aim. So the I guess I'm going to ask you to explain a little bit about some of those um, uh, those those energy resilience uh, objectives. Um, I, I recall reading a decade and a half ago, kind of in the middle of the, the engagement in Iraq, um, the United States military, as an example, was really focused on that issue, um, trying to uh, reduce the need for long supply lanes, uh, running fuel convoys over long distances, and all the, the security threats um, that that's that that those uh, generated. Um, so I guess to get you to expand a little bit about that, um, and in terms of where the where the focus is this largely a ground operation um, focus, uh, drawing on the, the Middle East or the Iraq experience, um, or, or is it other components of the armed services? And then I guess if you can get you to also touch on a little bit about what types of objectives are being set in terms of those uh, reductions. Is it um, an idea of, of getting uh, fully off of, of fuels, adjusting to a hybrid uh, set, or reducing dependency, or, or put some qualifiers around exactly um, how ambitious those initiatives are? Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, the energy resilience goal was first um, applied to operations uh, because the supply chain was fragility. Um, and this uh, has been developed for, for years now. Um, so it could be um, the development of uh, energy efficiency on, on camps uh, and in equipments. It could be uh, supplying energy through uh, renewable energy or uh, um, also innovating and trying to um, to develop new equipment and new vehicles working on hydrogen or uh, electricity and and or electricity um, 
As for uh, energy efficiency or um, energy resilience of infrastructure that are on national territories or in national uh, areas, this is much more recent and it's related to uh, actual goals to reduce carbon re um, emissions. Um, so I would say that the, um, the consideration um, and the uh, trying to reduce carbon emission in on your own territory is much more related to governmental uh, goals. Um, and there is a small part that is related to energy resilience because due to increasing digitalization and uh, increasing um, dependency on electricity, uh, armed forces realized that um, even on national territories, something could happen and electricity supply could fail and that it would be important to make sure that um, all infrastructure are fully resilient and that they do not depend on uh, external provider that could fail in their in their supply. Um, but that's that's more recent than operation decarbonization through uh, through energy resilience. And uh, to come back to your questions about the objectives or figures or, or uh, numbers, um, what we can observe in our report is that most armed forces set objectives for their uh, national and civilian infrastructure and vehicles um, because it's part of governmental goals and that they they can much more connect their infrastructure and vehicles on the national territory to governmental uh, programs than they could for operations and operations are still very um, rarely integrated into national uh, defense uh, emission reduction goals. So as, as you're thinking about the, the basket of countries that you folks had looked like, uh, which um, from your standpoint are, are French allies, but from a Canadian lens, or I think are, are largely also uh, Canadian allies as well. Um, how would you sort of typify how the difference or different approaches are being reflected in how those organizations are actually going about their plans? Are these are the emissions targets? Are they are they set aside in one kind of box in terms of a, a energy resilience or sustainability type of objectives, or are the different organizations actually factoring in um, these objectives and these initiatives into overall departmental uh, planning, strategic planning? Uh, wh what's the differences in approaches that you've observed in terms of how people are trying to achieve what they're doing um well i'm not sure i can answer all your questions because um i've looked into it but i think there is much more to do um but what i can feel is that for most uh, countries that we've studied the objectives are um are ministerial objectives uh, so they um they are supposed to cover all activities of the ministry, but when you look into the little details afterwards, most of the time they say that external operations are out, are excluded from this objective, and that they will, they might follow the global dynamic of reducing carbon emission, but they will not be due to answer to those uh, objectives and those numbers. Um, so there is a common, uh, a common point here that it's uh, difficult, it's still very difficult to um, maintain a military um, effectiveness uh, 
with uh, those emission reduction goals. So the military effectiveness being the priority, um, this is clearly stated that that they, they would not renounce to those um, to this effectiveness and that they will try to um, to inject uh, carbon emission reduction into their their um, external operation, but that is not the priority. And as we said, sometimes it has been done through energy resilience program rather than actual mitigation programs. For 111 years, the Royal Canadian Navy has worked closely with our allies around the world. During the Battle of the Atlantic, Canada's Navy stood shoulder to shoulder with our allies. Many of the ships that Canada put to sea in World War II were built in Canada, and that tradition lives on today. Our sponsor, Irving Shipbuilding, will build the new Canadian surface combatant for Canada at the Halifax Shipyard. The CSC is based on the Type 26 Global Combat Ship Design, which is currently under construction in the United Kingdom and Australia. Canada's CSC will also be equipped with the Aegis Combat System, extending Canada's interoperability with six allied nations around the world. The new CSC will be Canada's most advanced ship ever built and is the superior choice to protect and support Canadian sailors. The Royal Canadian Navy has always stood up for Canada's interests and stood with our allies to secure them. The CSC ensures our Navy has the tools it needs to take that legacy into the future. So uh, how much of that, um, so you're talking about the, the, the keeping the focus on the operational outputs, um, but also trying to, to balance that against um, uh, the, the, the the wider set of objectives, whether or not it's resilience or whether or not it's a, a wider sustainability objective. I guess, are you seeing any evidence about um, how countries can can um, do that in a way that aligns with how they actually operate? So some of the countries that you mentioned are other uh, Commonwealth countries like Canada that generally tend to participate as part of a, a coalition operations. Um, are there considerations being given in, in terms of the actual operation deployments where you work with other people that will potentially supply the fuel that would impact some of the choices that different countries are making? To, sorry again, to partially answer your, your question, um, what I've observed is mainly about innovation programs. And so there is cooperation in innovation programs, uh, including in, in NATO uh, Center for Excellence. And there is uh, there are also innovation uh, programs and development programs uh, national, in, like in, in different uh, countries. But um, it's still difficult to ally uh, interoperability and uh, carbon emission reduction. When we think about France, for example, uh, one key element of its uh, energy strategy, its recent energy strategy is to rely on one fuel only, uh, whether it be for uh, plane ships uh, or uh, terrestrial vehicles. And that, um, that helps uh, in terms of energy resilience because there is only one a supply chain to, to secure but it also means that it can hinder some part of uh, of potential uh, inter uh, inter ally um, emission reduction programs because if some allies are working on uh, hydrogen vehicles for example or um, fuel-y battery uh, fueled vehicle that could be a problem with uh, with French armed forces. So there is uh, parallel innovation programs, but I haven't found any common uh, program for emission reduction. 
And then in terms of how uh, the different uh, countries that you're looking at are approaching these things in, in terms of working with other allies within their own governments, uh, could you just talk a little bit about some of what you're observing in terms of the, the relationship between ministries of defense and militaries uh, and other um, actors in government, um, and things like the, the Department of Energy in the United States, as an example? What's the linkage or relationship between uh, defense and other parts um, uh, of government? So I can answer on the U.S. part and on the French part, um, and I will uh, leave your next uh, your next um, uh, speaker um, the topic of the uh, MOD uh, in the U.K. Uh, on the French part, um, the the Ministry of Defense uh, work on climate and climate security with the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs because there is a big deal with the U United Nations uh, Council for, for Security. Um, but um, programs with the Ministry of Energy, which is here the Ministry of Ecological Transition, uh, remain quite scattered um, and scarce, sorry. And um, I would say that even innovation programs um, and uh, energy-related innovation program remains in the um, in the Ministry of, of Defense of Armed Forces in France. Uh, whereas in the United States, what I've been observing through um, the, the analysis of different uh, memorandum of understanding is that there is a close relation and a close cooperation between the uh, Department of Energy and the Department of Defense. Um, if for those who are interested, uh, I could send you afterwards a few, few references, but you have several memorandum of understanding which um, are setting up transversal, transministerial uh, groups working on innovation programs related with, uh, to, uh, to screening the defense. Um, there is a, a memorandum of understanding specifically um, um, focusing on enhancing energy resilience and with like a point of contact and, and people that are in charge of making sure that it's been followed um, with labs from the Department of Energy working for uh, the Department of Defense or on the same topic. And so there is a strong, way stronger uh, transministerial um, work in the US than, than in France. Um, we haven't had the time to look into all our allies uh, and the way they, they, um, they work and they integrate climate change in the transministerial and transversal way. But um, the US has been um, one of the first uh, to, to consider climate change as a security matter. And we can observe that also in the way they, they manage the, the topic into their, in, in their departments, because um, this is a topic that is handled by the, the Pentagon in a really interesting way. I guess if you're reflecting on the, the different countries that you and your organization have looked at, I guess, are there one or two um, significant areas that from a sustainability impact and a CO2 reduction standpoint um, that you think bear uh, particular scrutiny by other countries um, such as Canada that have set uh, quite ambitious targets um, for our own armed forces in terms of what they can do? What, what one or two suggestions would you have in terms of um, initiatives that are really worthwhile um, uh, replicating or at least looking at quite closely? Um, there had been a 
great deal, at least in, in France and in the UK, I think, about reducing waste uh, in external operation. Um, and it might seem very uh, like a detail, but when you think about it, it's been initially uh, initially launched because much more norms are uh, being uh, set up and um, it's uh, it's compulsory now to uh, to take care of its uh, of our own waste and uh, it's also um, very interesting in terms of um, energy generation because part of this waste can be used to create or to generate energy and um, reducing this waste is also interesting in terms of um, simply the number of uh, of uh, material that you have to take care of when you when you handle the displacement or the um the i've lost my english word for that but the decommissioning of a of a camp um and so that's something that seemed interesting uh for me and um another topic that is uh, really pushed forward by few few ministries of defense are, is the um, additive fabrication, so 3D printing, uh, whether it be for metal or um, or other material, because that um, can um, reduce the amount of uh, material that is needed to create or um, to yet yeah, create something, and it also um, offers uh, more flexibility and less uh, supply chains um, so that was also something that we looked uh, into a bit further and then um, in terms of energy per se um, the what we actually what we consider as um, an attention point or um, yeah um, there is there is something to consider when we think about smart grid and everything. So what we've seen is that a lot of armed forces are considering smart grid as a essential point for, for transition, to transition to renewable energy, but that's one more fragility and one more vulnerability to, to take into account. And when we cross that with uh, climate impact over the world, uh, what we can see is that um, for camps that are in tropical areas, uh, more humid and hotter conditions will not help the digitalization of uh, those camps and like relying on smart grid could add a really big vulnerability to those camps actually. So um, we, I cannot say that there is something that, that uh, other ally did that uh, um, Canada didn't consider. Um, but there are a few points like this that we can that we can uh, highlight. And to finish, um, the Dutch uh, armed forces are um, working on water and uh, water gener pure water generation and uh, water usage and um, in a very deep way. And um, considering on the other part what we know about climate in the next uh, decades, we know that water will be an essential resource uh, for uh, armed forces as for local populations. And so working also uh, on this topic before it's, uh, it's too late uh, seems important to me. Julia, thank you again for joining us from Paris. Thank you very much.
Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaica support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa, and thanks go to our producers, Charlotte Duval-Antoine and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.